and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. If you're watching us on Counterpunch Plus, thank you so much for the continued support. It means the world to us. Counterpunch Plus is our subscription section. That's what keeps the lights on, keeps Counterpunch going. And of course, we greatly appreciate all the support that we get. The emails from people telling me how much they appreciated the podcast and signed up for CP Plus. Boy, that really brings a smile to my face. Um, I would ask everybody who believes in independent media, who believes in maintaining these spaces on the left and in doing so in a truly independent fashion to please consider getting that subscription. Uh, It is a great way to support not just Counterpunch, but independent media generally. And that's something that's so critical these days. Uh, There aren't so many places that we can really turn to get trusted analysis. Hopefully Counterpunch is one of those for you. And I'm very, very fortunate to have somebody on the line with me today who is really one of those figures that we can look to. Uh, he is he is a member of the press, but he's also a member of, dare I say, the pantheon at Counterpunch, both by virtue of achievements and by virtue of pedigree. It's Andrew Coburn. Andrew Coburn is with me today. He is the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, and maybe even more importantly for our conversation today, he is the author of the brand new exciting book, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. Please go follow him on Twitter at Andrew M. Coburn. Andrew, welcome to Counterpunch. Hey, really great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for all of your work and for this really important and timely book. Um, let's just jump right into the conversation, if we could. I want to talk a little bit about the spoils of war. And I mean, I guess we can sort of just jump in by asking broadly how this book took shape. What was the impetus for writing this book right now? Well, it's a collection of you know things I've been working on for a few years. And really, the impetus was to bring it all together to express a basic point, which I think is too often ignored on the left as well as on the, you know, certainly on the right, um, except for some sections of the right who do get it, which is what drives the war machine, really. And I mean, it's long been my belief based on, you know, looking at this for years and years, that it's not, you know, sort of desire for empire or sort of, you know, lust for conquest or something. It's something very simple. It's money. You know, it's a really a drive, you know, that that's what the only way to explain why they do what they do. Why is it that they, you know, continually buy ineffectual weapons? Why is it that they make sort of horrendous, you know, in martial terms, mistakes? You know, why is it they, you know, buy, let's say, useless ships? Uh, why is it they, why is it that everything costs so much? And the only really, you know, explanation ready to hand is, that defense and war making isn't really the prime objective it's money it's you know power and <laughs> profit and the power that leads you to profit that's what drives the war machine so that's really the theme of this book so really to broaden it out a little bit the book is as much about the u.s war machine as it is about capitalism and about sort of the intersection of capital big capital in the united states and the military industrial complex well, that's right. And I should add, by the way, there's, there's a bit at the end where um, uh, I talk just about, well, capitalism, about the American financial system. I mean, capitalism at its purest and sort of most disgusting, really, um, which I, to- I talk about, uh, you know, what's been going on on Wall Street and why and how. 
but they really, the, the two go together. And, you know, the, the way to look at the war machine is as, you know, an expression, I guess, of late capitalism. You know, they, uh, um, you know, it becomes a sort of, um, so far from engaging in productive enterprise, um, I mean, Marxists may sort of quibble with my interpretation of all this, but so far from engaging in productive enterprise, you know, it's become a, a form of, you know, leeching off the, off the state, leeching off the body politic, just for the enrichment of really a very, you know, very few concerns. I mean, you know, most of the, most of the defense budget goes to just five corporations, most of the procurement budget. Um, and they have entrenched their, you know, increased and entrenched their power. Uh, the whole thing is very totally intertwined with Wall Street. And that I was very interested, for instance, to discover that uh, this is, goes back a few decades, but the, the Lockheed Corporation at the end of the 1960s was trembling on the verge of bankruptcy. And actually, the Defense Department was, you know, willing to let it go. I mean, they were so fed up with it. And Wall Street stepped in. The first, I think it was the National City, one of the, the major banks, I forget which, now stepped in and said, no, you know, we, we, we have too much of its paper. You can't go this, go on. And so that led to a massive, the first ever really gigantic bailout of a defense corporation. So, you know, you can't, uh, you can't separate the two. I mean, that's where uh, you can't think about defense without thinking of, the, of Wall Street and, you know, the system. How does your book help us to understand this phrase that we've known for more than 60 years, the military industrial complex? You know, we uh, speaking for myself, of course, I grew up uh, as far as the on the left in, in learning that term and in understanding it and in sort of shaping a worldview around an understanding of a complex, a military industrial complex, of course, coined uh, popularly by former President Eisenhower. Um, but Today, I feel like it's evolved into something even more than just what we understood to be the military industrial complex. So I guess my first question would be, is your book about the military industrial complex or is it about something more than that? And then the second question is, how useful of a term is that for us today? Um, well, it's about, you know, it's about the military industrial complex and it's, you know, it's various manifestations, I would say. And uh and as I was just saying, it's, you know, it's about a bit more than that, which is how it shades into sort of other aspects of our, of our system. It is entirely relevant today. Uh, I mean, I would enlarge it to say, um, you know, the military, industrial, intelligentsia, intelligence agency, congressional complex. But it's sort of really, you know, the old, the original phrase, military industrial complex, really sort of covers it all. I mean, there's... I guess you could say there's less industry now because they make less and less and you know much more of it is simply a simple transfer of money from the treasury to the pockets of the people who control the complex um back when eisenhower said it uh we used to produce thousands of planes and you know lots of ships and tanks and all the rest every year every year now i mean one of the interesting aspects of it all which i talk about in the book is how we spend more and more on producing less and less. Um, and I would add, I mean, going back to something we just talked about a minute ago, which is you've got to understand one of the things I'm really trying to explain in this book that, you know, people make the mistake of thinking, you know, the objective is defense, uh, that what the military industrial complex is all about is producing a 
you know, an effective defense. And, you know, you can say, well, it does it badly or it, uh, it you know, it's, they do bad things with it and they invade other countries. The whole point is it's not to do with defense. They're not that interested in defense, except as a way of, you know, excuse for extracting money. The objective is profit and money, you know, profit uh, uh, is loot, really. And that's, you know, that's what drives the machine. So I think, as I say, I think that's a mistake that people on the left make all too often. One of the things you touch on in the book on, on a number of occasions is this idea that uh, from an outsider's perspective, we would look at this military juggernaut of the United States and think that, that the primary goal would be some kind of efficiency in war making or, or advancements in war making or you yeah. know, whatever you might want to call that. But in fact, as you argue in the book, it's really much lower on the priority list than things like personal enrichment, personal advancement and so forth. Um, can you give us uh, an explanation of that and maybe some examples of that from our recent and maybe not as recent? recent past that illustrate what you're talking about? Sure. I mean, for instance, the first chapter in the book um, is about an incident, you know, a tiny, you know, the largest scale thing, a very sort of small incident in the recent Afghan war. And it's about how an Afghan family got blown away, got, got massacred. And what happened was this, there was a um, a couple of planes um, on patrol in eastern Afghanistan, and they were a type of plane called the A-10, which is, uh, through various reasons, which I won't go into right now, but it was actually it was designed to help troops on the ground, uh, much against the will of the Air Force, but the Air Force, for its own personal particular reasons at that moment, let it happen. Um, and it's designed so that the Pilots can actually see what's happening on the ground and you know, make judgments on this. Don't have to do it all through sort of fancy video screens and computers and all the rest. So anyway, these planes are flying along and they get an order from their controller uh, back at a base. They say there's troops in contact in such and such a location and uh, they need your help. So go, you know, go attack the enemy. So they find the location and they take a look and they fly lower and lower and they say, wait a minute, this, we can see this is just a, a farmhouse, a farm compound and the family, it's getting towards evening and the family are bringing in the animals for the night and, um, you know, there's nothing bad going on here. And so the, they so no, no, this is definitely the enemy, go, you know, bomb them. And so they, they're having, they're arguing back and forth and then the uh, word suddenly another voice comes on the radio, which is from a B-1 bomber, which is like a mile or two or three miles overhead. Uh, it says, what's the effect of, well, we're ready to bomb. And so the, finally they say to the uh, A-10 planes, the controller says, well, are you going to bomb or not? And they say, no, we're not. Um, this is not a good target. This is, you know, just civilians. Whereupon the B-1 says, okay, I'm ready to, you know, take over. Um, and this is all in military jargon, of course. And they proceed, the, the A-10s fly away and they see in their rear view mirrors, they see the sky light up as this family are destroyed. Now, this is, you know, one small tragedy in what was a mega tragedy, the whole war. But what, was, what it's all about is here was a weapon which by an accident of history, you know, could, was efficient and efficiently reported 
you know, what the situation was and was disregarded in favor of a $300 million nuclear bomber, uh, which was designed to fly to Moscow and drop nuclear weapons. And because that is preferable to the system, to the Air Force, because it, because it costs so much, because it justifies the whole Air Force ethos of long-range bombing with very expensive, highly complex technology, that was the preferred weapon, which resulted in, you know, these poor people being uh, blown to pieces. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's just one example of many I give in the book of how that continually happens. Um, you know, sometimes it devolves into straight corruption. I mean, for years, the U.S. Navy in the Pacific fleet, in the, in the Western Pacific, cruising around, would call at ports Allegedly, I mean, as far as the outside world was concerned, this was in, you know, in furtherance of American strategic objectives, um, you know, in support of allies or whatever, you know, all part of some military plan. In fact, it was because the guy in, who had the contracts to supply the fleet, he wanted them to go to particular ports where he'd make the most money. So he was bribing all the admirals with, uh, with cash and banquets and prostitutes. Um, you know, that's, you know, it, sometimes it devolves into straight corruption. But in every, almost every case you look at, you know, what the policy is all about is not, you know, military efficiency, is not, you know, what are we trying to do here, win a war or, you know, impress our allies or whatever. It is uh, money, um, you know, whether... <laughs> straight cash bribes to the admirals in that case, or, you know, profit to the Lockheed Corporation. Um, it basically all boils down to the same thing. And that, you know, is why, you know, our terms of success and failure for the United States, um, you know, the perceived objective, the alleged objectives have not been met for years and years. I mean, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, it's all been rather sort of humiliating. But as I argue throughout the book, it, in some ways it's been a thumping success because it's been great, you know, for the uh, for the military-industrial complex, which I was, you know, still I think a very useful term, um, because they've made, you know, so much money. I mean, look at Afghanistan. We see the figures tossed around of uh, a trillion dollars, or um, I think it was straight expenditure, which the ultimate bill will be more than twice that by the time we've paid the interest and paid for veterans' health care and all the rest. I mean, it's a staggering, debilitating waste of resources, but very profitable for some. It's probably useful that you mention the Afghan war there in your examples, because I think Afghanistan provides us a very interesting window in looking at some of these issues. I know that you said the book is sort of a culmination of a lot of work you've done over the years, of course, but it comes at a very timely moment with the U.S. exiting Afghanistan, because in a sense, obviously, a 20-year war that ends in what amounts to a humiliating defeat, whatever that's supposed to mean in the grand scheme of imperialism. But uh, it does give us this opportunity to sort of, I guess you could say, assess the nature of U.S. imperialism at this moment in history, at this time and place. And I think that your book offers a window into that as well. So it's not just about money and about personal ambition and so forth. It is also about imperialism and the evolving nature of U.S. imperialism, isn't it? Well, yes. I mean, it's, um, 
in the sense of, you know, they're more and more dependent on this. Um, I mean, it's interesting if you look at, uh, for example, I mean, what's meant to be the shining success stories of current American capitalism, which is the tech companies, um, who you'd think, I mean, you know, they were meant to, for a while, they were almost sold as the antithesis of the sort of grimy old Lockheeds and Raytheons of this world. They were all, you know, there was the bright new world of the internet and the personal freedoms this was conferring and so forth. What do we find two of the biggest comp tech companies now fighting this sort of blood feud over, which is a huge Pentagon crowd contract for $10 billion. Um, you know, Amazon and Microsoft busily suing each other to get hold of this. They're all, mi they migrate to this. I mean, uh, Google a few years ago uh, set up, you know, a division to get, you know, to work on defense. And the Google staff, a lot of them sort of, you know, bright-eyed and sort of idealistic, sort of rebelled and said, no, you know, Google stands for something better. Um, and therefore, you know, shouldn't be engaged in this nefarious activity. So they said, okay. Actually, it turns out that Google went ahead and, you know, <laughs> pressed for defense contracts anyway, paying little or no attention to the idealistic staff. So I think, it, you know, it's interesting how, I mean, in terms of manufacturing, um, you know, U.S. manufacturing, they, to a large extent has disappeared. It's all migrated to China, you know, all part of the plan. You know, well, why should we pay our, <coughs> pay workers in the US, you know, you know, some whatever miserable wage they're paying, you know, $15 an hour, my God. Um, when we can pay Chinese or Vietnamese workers, you know, a, a fraction of that. And that's, you know, so manufacturing industry shifted over, overseas. So what's all that's left really is, um, is defense manufacturing, um, which they haven't offshored yet, or to a certain extent they have, but um, let's say basically you, know, you still still make planes and planes and ships and submarines and so forth here. Um, so it's become a sort of pure defense complex. <laughs> the military industrial complex is the U.S. economic complex in some senses. Yeah, it's a, almost a, a, a nice distillation of what U.S. economic activity really is all about. But it also the other question that I think looms large with regard to Afghanistan is the role that other countries play as sort of tagging along with the U.S. war machine. And I don't just mean in terms of being junior partners in imperialism. I mean, there are a number of countries just in the region who have been eyeing Afghanistan's natural resources, uh, things that the United States was not necessarily interested in extracting for themselves. So it's almost like the U.S. is playing a a role uh, different from how we understood traditionally imperial powers uh, acting, certainly in the colonial context. Well, the greatest natural resource that the U.S. found in Afghanistan was the U.S. Treasury. Um, I mean, <laughs> that's where the money was and that's what they got. That's what they, in a way, went to get and got. Um, you know, we've been hearing for years about the tremendous natural resources in Afghanistan. Um, I'm sort of dubious as to whether anyone's ever going to sort of find, get much out of there for all sorts of reasons. I mean, the Chinese have a a copper mine that we were guarding and now they'll pay the Taliban to get it. There's supposed to be lithium, all sorts of things. I, I you know, I've never taken that um, so seriously. Do you remember, I mean, you'll probably may not be old enough to remember that for a long time on the left, they said, oh, the reason we were in Afghanistan was because of the oil. 
the oil. Oh, sure. The... Ha uh, Hamid Karzai was the puppet of Unical, who was sent in there to build a pipeline so that we could block well, the that's Chinese. that's Afghanistan. But yeah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that was, you know, that was, that was all that. But the, um, uh, you know, I, as I say, you know, I don't think, I mean, the U.S. goes to war when it's a really, really important sort of natural resource, certainly one that you know, we already control, like you know middle east oil in the middle east of course we were you know when saddam invaded kuwait of course we were going to go and kick him out of there i mean that's that was that was bound to happen um and he was obviously insane to think we'd do anything else um but otherwise i don't know do we you know we didn't go to war in vietnam to get offshore oil you know offshore oil fields i don't think we I mean, way back, we, you know, as you mentioned in the '90s, we did support the did support the Taliban. Um, I mean, sort of forgotten episode. The whole Taliban Taliban delegation came to Texas to uh, just you know talk talk with the oil companies about you know what they could do together. That was in I think 1990, sometime in the mid '90s, '95 or '96, as you say. I mean, Unical. Not a very big oil company, but they were, you know, they are involved in a deal, and there were all sorts of sleazy neocon characters, including Zalmay Khalilzad and um, Robert Oakley. I can't remember all the rest of them, um, you know. And um, were negotiating, you know, the, with the Taliban. It was all part of the deal. But you know, later on, I don't think we can explain twenty years of Afghanistan, of our, you know, military engagement in Afghanistan in terms of. Fighting to get the oil rights. It was about more than that, or less than that, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's kind of what I'm getting at. And, and one of the things I really appreciate about your book is sort of, and we're going to get to this on the other side of the break, but kind of let's call it the, you know, to sort of bastardize a phrase here, the banality of imperialism, right? I mean, the, the, that it's so banal in so many ways that it's almost jarring to even think about so how how base some of these motivations really are yeah 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 well i mean you know it's, it's what, what drives the <laughs> drives a lot of human activity is the desire for uh, desire for personal or personal profit um yeah it is kind of banal it's kind of you know in terms of the death and destruction and suffering that that ensues you know, i think banal is kind of uh you know that's what's a and get trite and talk about banality of evil um you know I, I find it's you know i think it's just horrible you know it's horrible the you know the fact that you know you, you may have been hearing from you know many now multiple reports from afghanistan that people in the countryside are saying well you know it's all kind of awful having the taliban back again in control and you know sort of locking women up and treating them horribly, but at least we don't have the war, at least we don't have the Americans bombing them, bombing us anymore. And that's, you know, that's, <laughs> makes it all, makes, makes it worthwhile. I mean, that shows how sort of, that should, people, everyone should know that, everyone should read those reports. And if they have regrets about the end of the war, about, you know, the, the American defeat, they should think about that, that people actually prefer the Taliban to us. 
Indeed. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we'll continue talking a bit about the book. And I want to talk about some other aspects of war making and the military industrial complex that I think figure into this equation. So uh, we'll continue the conversation with Andrew Coburn. Follow him on Twitter at Andrew M. Coburn. And most importantly, get a copy of the book, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit and the American War Machine. We will be right back. back chatting with Andrew Coburn. Again, the book, Get Yourself a Copy, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. It is, uh, well, it'll be the holidays soon enough, and that would be a perfect stocking stuffer for your friends, loved ones, and possibly also the idiots that you have to argue with on a daily basis. Okay, so um, Andrew, I want to talk a little bit about privatization. Privatization plays a real key role in war making today, even much more so than it did, you know, in decades past. Uh, where does the role of the uh, the ever elusive private contractor fit into this equation that you're laying out in the book? Uh, to what extent does that represent a uh, maybe not a new but sort of newish frontier in war making and war profiteering? Well, it's, you know, it's a phenomenon that's really erupted in the, come to the fore, I should say, in the last, uh, over the last 30 years. Um, to an enormous degree now, the, you know, so much of what the military used to do itself in terms of supply, particularly, um, you know, sort of getting it you know, in terms of fuel and food and you know, all the things that troops need, all the support 
has been privatized. Um, you know, it's gone to corporations, uh, contractors, um, who, you know, in, in most cases, or in a large number of cases, are, um, you know, made up of staff by former military people, are in many, more, many cases owned by giant uh, Wall Street private equity firms like Cerberus. Um, and, you know, the effect of that is it, since they, you know, since it's, it's a hugely expensive way to do things, um, because, you know, you're adding on um, enormous amounts of, you know, they're building in their profit. Um, so that's, you know, that's had a huge effect. And you've had, now there's a new phenomenon, or relatively new, that I've noticed that's becoming more and more apparent, which is companies, Wall Street, investing in companies that buy up, will establish a monopoly in a particular field. A particular, it could be a part. I mean, I talk in the book, there's a company called Transdime, uh, T-R-A-N-S-D-I-G-M, which has made a speciality of, you know, it'll find like in a helicopter engine, some particular part, a rotor arm or something like that, which doesn't actually, you know, it's been, they've been buying it, the you know, military have been buying it for years, not at not very much cost, but you have to have it, or the helicopter can't fly. So the Transdime comes along and buys that company that makes that, jacks up the price by, you know, a thousand percent, two thousand percent, and, you know, makes a vast profit. And that's happening more and more and more so that, um, you know, so that the already, you know, outrageously enormous defense budget, defense spending gets, you know, it pushed even higher. And it's one of the ways, you know, that sort of you think, well, if, you know, okay, if we've got to have helicopters go to war, we might as well be able to buy a lot of them so we can, you know, wage war more efficiently. Well, they can't because now the helicopters cost so much because of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things that, you know, where the price has been jacked up by a thousand, two thousand percent, um, making it impossible to buy more than a few. I mean, it's just, and then the, another part of the privatization, which is important, is the whole role of mercenaries. Um, you know, more and more, you know, turned out, um, that, you know, a large part of the whole operation in Afghanistan was being run by mercenaries, not, I mean, in some cases, well, we had Afghan mercenaries um, were doing a lot of the fighting at the end, mostly retained by the CIA. Um, but, and, you know, the whole, the, the Afghan military was all the reason it could function at all, um, as much as it did function, was thanks to American military contractors, um, you know, keeping the Air Force going, keeping communications going, running the drone fleet, all that. Uh, and the moment they were withdrawn by Biden, the whole thing collapsed in a, you know, in a few days. To shouldn't have been a surprise to people, but it, uh, but it was. So, you know, it's the greed, the, uh, the privatization, and you, know, you fit on a very important point, this um, privatizing the military inevitably gives you, you know, a military that doesn't work very well because you, you know, first of all, it costs more than even the U.S. can afford. And secondly, you know, they're not, you know, not too sort of interested in, uh, in, uh, you know, in prosecuting things effectively. Andrew, you've been chronicling these things for years and years, and you are probably better positioned than anybody to answer this question. So 
uh, in relation to what we're talking about, particularly the privatization of war making and sort of the way in which it's been made into this profit engine, what role did our dearly departed uh, vicious killer Donald Rumsfeld play in all of this? The neocons, Cheney, the Bush administration, the immediate post 9-11 period, uh, because it does seem that that was a critical window uh, where a lot of these changes, if not were set into motion, then were at least accelerated. Um, well, they did, you know, they, I mean, I always thought that the reason, you know, one reason they were so quick to go to war in Afghanistan and then, you know, as quickly as they could go to war in Iraq was to save their political, you know, to save themselves politically, because, you know, if you remember, they'd been warned repeatedly um, that, uh, you know, there was a terrorist attack coming, I mean, fairly unequivocally, actually, which they carefully ignored because they'd come into office on the promise that they were going to vastly increase defense spending. And they decided that the way they were going to do that was on the whole Star Wars. I mean, one of the ways was the whole sort of Star Wars initiative. And that was their sort of prime fixation. I mean, you know, withdrawn from the Star Wars treaty with the Russians. And they were, you know, they were going to, you know, that's what, that was their plan. I mean, they were really moving to, even though the Soviet Union, you know, was in a state of, you know, Complete, I mean, not Soviet Union, Russia was in a complete state of complete disarray. You know, they were focused on that. So they weren't really, they didn't want to think about some sort of terrorist thing or anything like that. Then, you know, there's this devastating attack uh, in New York and on the Pentagon, and they realized that there are going to be, you know, if anyone, if people got the idea that, wait a minute, you know, this needn't have happened, it was these bozos just ignored all the warnings. They could be impeached. They should have been impeached, of course. So I always thought that was the sort of that was the first reaction. Um, of course, there were other impulses uh, pushing them along. Um, the Israelis, you know, were very keen to um, to eliminate Saddam. Um, the Saudis were very keen. Our great Saudi allies were very keen to deflect attention from the fact that the attack seems to be organized out of Saudi Arabia and that you know, most of the attackers were Saudis, so they, they were very keen to nudge us in the direction of Afghanistan. But Bush and Cheney, I mean, well, sorry, not Bush, Cheney and Rumsfeld, you asked specifically about Rumsfeld, there's, there's another aspect to it too, which is Rumsfeld, who was sort of an odd character and actually rather stupid, something people didn't quite sort of understand about him, um, but he, he was also sort of kind of a megalomaniac and he, he'd come into office, come into the Pentagon, determined that he was going to control the bureaucracy. You know, the, he was going to get hold of the, the military bureaucracy and it would follow his orders and, uh, um, you know, and sort of do things the way he wanted it. And they resisted and they resisted very effectively. You know, the, uh, I mean, he, he used to talk a lot about transformation. And he had a particular, was a Navy Admiral who was going to be his big guy who was going to implement transformation. And I remember at that time looking to see where they, you know, was this guy in Rumsfeld's office? You know, was he sitting in some position? Of, no, they'd given him an office like at the other end of the building, practically in the basement. Um, you know, they didn't, they weren't going to do what Rumsfeld told them. But when he said, when they said, okay, when Rumsfeld and Cheney said, well, okay, well, you know, we're going to go in war with Iraq and displace Saddam Hussein. They thought, well, okay, you know, that'll be easy. You know, they got that wrong. But, um, you know, it'll be a quick war. 
and we'll give them what they want, and you know, we'll probably get a budget increase out of it. And he's not going to, you know, this wards off any threat that they will get control of things we really care about, which is procurement, you know, where the big contracts go. Um, and of course, that all turned out badly. But um, you know, Bush and you know, they had their own their own schemes, you know, the whole neocon, you know, sort of a project for a new American century. But I think, you know, basically it was all a political issue, control, comp competition for power in the Pentagon and political self-preservation by the uh, administration of the time right after 9-11. And one of the other, one of the other ways that profit, you know, that, that the military machine becomes this profit engine is, uh, I guess, for lack of a better way of explaining it, when the war is brought home, and we see this in many ways, we see this in the form of military equipment that's distributed to local police forces. We see it in the form of uh, contractors who provide the training to the local police officers who then go around executing people in the streets, as we see on an almost weekly basis. So much of the war mentality, let alone the war profiteering, also has been brought home and i think trump and trump that the trump era really represents that uh, almost in a sort of distillation of that well yeah i mean you know you mentioned the you know the the militarization i mean the transfer of military equipment to the police um which is a very obvious example i mean it's a ludicrous spectacle of you know police departments small town police departments driving around in you know 15 ton trucks designed to, you know, to uh, withstand, you know, bomb blasts, you know, delivering sort of, you know, traffic citations practically with that, which is, you know, egregious and disgraceful and, you know, amazingly still hasn't been stopped. But it goes beyond that, of course. Um, we have, a, you know, militarization of the police. Um, and there was a very interesting example of this during Occupy. Um, there was a police captain um, who uh, was, you know, fingered, was, you know, became public. That he was, you know, prominent in the sort of brutal, in the brutal, you know, it was general New York police brutality towards the Occupy uh, people in the Occupy movement. Well, there was one police captain who was particularly disgusting and sort of, you know, maniacal almost in his abuse of these perfectly, you know, ordinary peaceful people. And it turned out he had been uh, a major prison guard in the military prison in Iraq. You know, the, the, it was a real example of the war coming home. He'd been used to beating up Iraqis, um, who were, you know, many of them, that's really what led to the formation of ISIS. You know, they were well, formed in the prison camps. And he'd, you know, he'd, uh, he's, you know, we all know about Abu Ghraib, but it was Camp Bukha as well. Um, and then this guy comes home and he's recruited, you know, joins the New York police and goes on to, uh, uh, to treat Occupy protesters the same way they've been treating Iraqis. Um, and you'll find, you know, there's a huge, I think it's quite a significant percentage, uh, maybe one out of five or more um, American police officers are now veterans. And I don't, you know, I don't want to disparage veterans or, you know, police officers in general, but... Um, you know, we all know that, you know, that what went on in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, induced a lot of trauma in our, uh, 
you know, serving men and women there. And, you know, maybe they wouldn't be the best people to become peace officers. Um, so that's, you know, another example. And, you know, for finally, and most, you know, perhaps most obviously or seriously, um, we have the whole um, spectacle of the you know, security measures, you know, curtailment of civil liberties that were introduced on the excuse of, you know, fighting terrorism, uh, the Patriot Act and all the other uh, <clears throat> egregious things that were introduced, you know, the tapping all our phones and listening to all our, you know, monitoring all our communications, which was supposedly justified by the war on terror, have now, now become part of our, you know, the, our entire environment. Um, you know, the vast increase in government power, all induced, you know, that was, that was thanks to... <laughs> Thanks to the wars, oh no, you know, at least excused by the wars. I mean, it was steadily happening anyway. Um, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't forget that Clinton introduced, I think, it was the Defense of Terrorism Act, or well, certainly signed it, and that was in the '90s when we weren't at, weren't at war with anyone, uh, which really was the precursor to the Patriot Act. But you know, it's really, you know, as everyone knows, accelerated to an exponential way since uh, since 9/11. Well, you're sort of preempting my next question, so you've segued it beautifully for me, Andrew. The, my 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 follow up to that is, if you could um, explain to us, maybe with some examples, how and I think you kind of you kind of just did a little bit. How do liberals enable this war machine? What role do liberals and quote unquote Democrats play? you know, left of center, the center, what role do they play in the war machine and the war profiteering system? Well, I mean, leaving, I mean, you have to define left of center or center and Democrats. Uh, I mean, I'll give you one clear example, which is um, the House Armed Services and the Senate Armed Services have both recently voted for massive increases in the defense budget, which will, you know, if they were, if they're implemented, these armed services committees, sorry, I should say, um, if they're implemented, will add an extra, I think it's $1.2 trillion, add $1.2 trillion to defense spending in the next 10 years. Now we have all this sort of moaning and whining about the 300, you know, the uh, $3.5 trillion um, you know, from the uh, you know Biden, the reckons, the Democrats think it's really put through. But I mean, the, no one's really talking about the fact that you know bipartisanship uh, has brought us you know 1.2 trillion dollars more, or might bring us. It looks is set to bring us an extra 1.2 trillion dollars over what is already you know a ludicrous, a farcical level of defense spending. Um, so that and you know that was. You know that was these. This was passed by, you know, the Democrat-controlled, Democratic-controlled uh, Senate Armed Services Committee and the Democratic-controlled House Armed Services Committee. You know, on a bipartisan basis. So, you know, that tells you most of what you need to know about the Democrats. Um, uh, and um, you know, the you know the modern and the, certainly that would include the so-called moderates. I mean, I, I wish people would stop talking about moderate Democrats. Let's talk about corporate Democrats. Uh, you know, for moderate, read corporate throughout. Um, left, you know, the progressive caucus in the House, um, and there are a few in the Senate. 
precious few, um, more of them in the, in the house, so there are some you know, excellent people. I mean, still, we have the bright, shining example of Barbara Lee, the only member to vote against the, uh, the Patriot Act. Oh, sorry, the, the only, I beg your pardon, not the Patriot Act, the only member to vote against the authorization for the use of military force, which every other <laughs> Democrat and Republican, you know, as well as Republican, voted for back in 2001, which still is still being used to justify, you know, whatever military operation they feel like undertaking. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I really don't mind, hold out much hope for them. Uh, hope for them. I said there are there are some progressives now. We have the. You know, we have the you know the the squad. We have um, people like Ro Khanna. You know, there are some people who who aren't bad. Um, but again, going back to something I was talking about earlier, they, you know, it's they, you know, the theme tends to be well, we you know we're spending all that we we need to take some of that money from defense, and spend it on you know good things like healthcare and education. Which is true, of course. You know, it's ridiculous that they, you know, how little, how, well, you know, let's not get into healthcare or education. How badly, how bad our system is, systems are, I should say. But the point is that what the progressives should be saying to the Republicans, to the Hawks, saying, "Listen, you want defense. What you're doing in throwing money at at the defense complex is giving us a poor defense." You know, you give them the money for, a, you know, you let them spend $13 trillion on an aircraft carrier and you'll get an aircraft carrier where the lifts don't work. Um, actually, the toilets don't work either. Um, you know, because they, you know, they introduced overly complex, you know, technology because there's more money to be made that way. Um, you know, if you want, you know, we, you throw money at them, they'll give you the B-1 bomber um, instead of, you know, the, the, the much cheaper, more effective A-10 that I was talking about at the beginning. So it's, um, you know, that's the argument the progressives should be making. And they keep avoiding it. They keep saying as if, you know, oh, well, you know, 700, you know, whatever it's up to now, 700, heading for $750 billion uh, in defense spending, like gets you $750 worth of defense, you know, uh, if you spend half of half of that, if you took away half of that, well, you only have half as effective a defense. No, you'd have twice as effective a, as defense, and that's something the left really needs to get through its head. Indeed, and I was thinking recently about an example of this, just because of some of the books that I was reading not long ago. Um, you know, the sense that you know, quote unquote, liberals, whatever that's supposed to mean, but the liberal represents sort of the foil for the reactionary war hawk, right? So I was thinking about um, Zbigniew Brzezinski in the 1970s and the trilateralists and the detentists and all of that whole school of thought when it came to U.S. foreign policy, and they represented precisely the foil against which Reagan and the reactionary neocons that were around him used to kind of muscle their way into power. Paul Nitza and all of those people from the 1950s that were retreaded in the 1980s, sort of seen against as a sort of in contrast to Carter and Brzezinski and this liberal imperialists worldview. And it's almost like the two reinforce each other in a, dare I say, dialectical relationship. Well, I dare say there really wasn't, you know, there wasn't much difference, really. I mean, uh, 
Brzezinski and Carter, think what they did. They gave us, you know, they brought us the Afghan war. They, you know, Brzezinski famously boasted about, uh, you know, sort of uh, goading the Russians into intervening. Um, you know, he also did, which was often forgotten, you know, they, uh, the Khmer Rouge, he got Carter to support after the Khmer Rouge were driven out of Cambodia by the Vietnamese, you know, Carter and Brzezinski supported them and got them up and running again. Even more as disgraceful a crime, really. Um, so, you know, remember that the, you know, the, you can sort of try and sort of strike a difference between them. I don't see much difference. I mean, marginally, you know, for example, um, Carter made a big deal when he came in. And I talk about this in Spoils of War. Um, yeah, my, my, my book is out. Um, he, when he came in, he made, a, or soon after he came in, he made a big deal of canceling the B-1 bomber. And, you know, this is meant to be the liberal, you know, great thing. We were canceling this horribly expensive weapon. Uh, the B-1 bomber had been, you know, contract arranged by Nixon to get him votes in California, basically. So that's, a, <clears throat> and so, you know, be the, but then Carter goes ahead to authorize, that was, he'd gotten rid of the Republican bomber, and he goes ahead and author goes ahead and authorizes the Democratic bomber, the Democrat bomber, which was the stealth, the B, uh, the B two, uh, even more expensive. <laughs> uh, they could, you know, they only managed to build twenty of them in the end, twenty or twenty one. Um, but that was, you know, but employed you know, enormous numbers of people and you know yielded enormous profits for the Northrop Corporation. Um, so, you know, it, I didn't see much difference in the two, you know, you, the Demo, you know, as I say, the Republicans had the Republican bomber and the Democrats had the Democrat bomber. <laughs> we still still had these useless bombers, um, you know, costing billions and billions of dollars. Uh, in the couple of minutes that we have remaining, I just wanted to touch on one other issue that kept coming up when I was reading through the book, and 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 that has to do with, and we already talked about sort of the banality of imperialism, or you know what have you, but um, this sort of juxtaposition between the sort of banal reality that you lay out in the book about you know personal ambitions and profits and things like that versus the kind of conspiratorial thinking that is so rampant today where everything is part of a smoke-filled room plot and conspiracy going all the way up to the rulers of masters of the universe you know and there's something terribly reassuring about reading your book and knowing huh. just how base all of their motivations really are most of the time well, I guess <laughs> you find it reassuring. I, I don't. Um, I don't find it very reassuring that. Well, I say know, that facetiously. <laughs> well, you do, of course. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, I mean, you know, let's take an example, you know, for the the Obama, that great Democrat, you know, he authorized, he signed off on a trillion dollar plus worth of so-called nuclear modernization. It was basically buying a whole new uh, nuclear delivery force, you know, new bomber, new missile, new ICBM, new submarine, new submarine missile, new cruise missile, new warheads. I mean, all for being pushed by the, you know, the nuclear industrial complex, which is very substantial. Um, uh, 
but you know horrifyingly dangerous particularly dangerous because wrapped up in that was the uh, uh, you know the whole idea of well they money for they've developed now um, very low yield warheads um, you know down a third of a kiloton you know shading all part of an effort to sort of make nuclear weapons more acceptable you know you could sort of you know, they're kind of a bit bigger than a conventional artillery shell, but hey, you know, pretty close. And if we fire one at the Russians, they'll understand this isn't, you know, we're not starting a nuclear war. We're just, you know, it's kind of a bigger bang. I mean, this is completely insane. Um, again, sort of useful work for the nuclear labs, uh, Los Alamos, Livermore, Sandia, which, you know, are themselves often ignored, but they are very powerful and dangerous defense corporations. Um, so that, you know, that that's, again, you know, <laughs> that's why no one should be reassured just to, just when people like me say, oh, well, it's all just about the money. It's about the money, but you might get, you know, global, <laughs> global annihilation with it. Well, isn't that what capitalism is bringing to us all anyway? I guess. Um, which, <laughs> Not which that was. that's terribly reassuring either. Uh, indeed so. Well, um, I just want to quickly ask you one other, one final question. I sometimes like to throw this one out there to people, but when we have younger folks listening or watching, um, what information or i you know i wouldn't say advice but what would you like to impart to maybe younger folks who are just encountering some of these issues for the first time maybe those who came of age post trump politically came of age post trump uh what would you like to impart to them about the nature of u.s imperialism the military industrial complex and so forth well it's just a part of it but i i would say don't be overall don't be intimidated by the you know, when people talk about sort of the technology or these, you know, the big concepts, it's actually pretty easy to understand. Um, if you bear in mind what I've been talking about, you know, while I've been on with you, which is that they're, you know, it's all about the money. Um, it's about profit. So when people talk about new advanced, you know, super duper radars that, that can enable us to, you know, spot an enemy on the other side of the world or something like that, or, you know, the, all the stuff that the press very reprehensibly, you know, repeats and touts and endorses, um, you know, don't believe it. I mean, do you, you know, do your own research, look it up, um, think about, you know, sort of <clears throat> look into history, you know, to note that this these are very often very old ideas that have been discredited over and over again. Um, you know, like, for example, the notion that if you take out, if you kill, eliminate a particular, you know, individual on the, on the other side, this is going to do you some good, which is really what all our strategic bombing theory is really based on, uh, you know, individual person or individual, you know, sort of system component, a headquarters or a factory or something like that. Um, you know, it's been tried over and over again. It's never worked. Um, I guess that's important. Um, people, you know, maybe young people aren't reading enough history, but they should. So I guess, you know, that's my, that's my one small plea <laughs> for people to, uh, uh, to people pay attention to. 
Well, and of course, one additional plea is that people all pay attention to your new book, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. Andrew Coburn is the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine. You can also get, oh, by the way, also, I didn't even plug it yet, but his other book, which is a real classic, Kill Chain, Rise of the High-Tech Assassins. We didn't even really talk about drones here today, but that's another aspect of this really vile uh, subject that we're discussing here. So, Andrew Coburn. Byrne, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio and Counterpunch Plus and talking with us tonight. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Eric. Listeners, viewers, thank you again for your continued support. If you're listening to the free audio podcast, please do get over to Counterpunch Plus and get your subscription. Subscribers, you're the best. We will talk again next week. Mm-hmm.